I'm Brian Santo, Editor-in-Chief of EE Times. You're listening to EE Times On Air. And this is the weekly briefing for the week ending March 18th. The cable industry has dominated the residential broadband market from close to the beginning. Cable developed its own data streaming infrastructure and has been upgrading that technology at intervals to remain ahead of rival phone companies. Recently, the industry upped the ante again. Cable typically offers broadband with much faster download speeds than upload speeds. The fastest cable internet speed thus far has been 1 gigabit per second. Earlier in January, Comcast demonstrated broadband speeds of 4G in both the downstream and upstream directions, using a new cable modem created by Broadcom, which has long provided silicon to the cable industry. That was a good excuse to call up Phil McKinney, the CEO of Cable Labs. That's the research arm of the cable industry. We talked about how cable engineered the jump from asymmetrical 1G to symmetrical 4G, with the goal of hitting 10G using refinements of the same technology. McKinney is an authority on innovation and how to inspire it, and I couldn't help letting the conversation range from innovations in the cable industry to innovations the cable industry might be enabling to just the cool new stuff that he's seen recently. We'll get to our conversation with Phil McKinney in a moment, right after we run down some of the news covered in EE Times this week. NVIDIA dropped its effort to purchase ARM Holdings a little over a month ago, and the fallout still hasn't abated. Last week, Intel Foundry Services made a commitment to support several companies involved with the development of processors based on the RISC-V architecture, which is generally seen as more directly competitive with ARM than with Intel itself. This week, ARM announced a pending layoff. Meanwhile, one of those RISC-V vendors, sci 5 announced it had just completed a new funding round in which it took in $175 million. In one of our C-Suite interviews, my EE Times colleague Nitin Dahad interviews sci 5 CEO Patrick Little, who talks about raking in a big round of cash so that his company can try and grab business away from ARM. We've got those two stories. Meanwhile, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine is becoming more horrifying. The world's response is to pile on the sanctions, and some of those sanctions involve the electronics industry. We've got an article that focuses on how Russia is being cut off from 5G equipment. We've got another on how, even though Russia's economy is smaller than one might imagine, the impact of the bans on sales of electronics equipment to Russia are likely to spread way beyond Russia itself. Find all of those stories and more. Visit the website at eetimes.com. If you're on this episode's webpage already, there are links directly to the articles I just mentioned. Cable companies have roughly two-thirds of the residential broadband market. Whatever you think of your cable company, this is irrefutable. Cable network is incredibly robust. When the pandemic hit and millions of people started working out of their homes, there was an unprecedented surge of traffic on residential broadband networks, and they held. I've covered the cable industry as a journalist for a long time. I watched as the industry built out infrastructure to support one gigabit transmission on the downstream into homes. Now, 
A broadband service provider needs only about 20 megabits a second to stream a different movie to four different people in one household simultaneously. If you wanted to make those four 4K streams, you might need 100 megabits. So who actually needs a gigabit? The answer is still not many people, but once everyone got sent home, the relatively few people who did need it, they needed it badly, and it was available to most people. The cable industry is now looking beyond 1 gigabit per second, or 1G, to 10 gigabits per second, or 10G. The largest cable company in the U.S., Comcast, is committed to eventually getting to 10G. Comcast recently announced it had successfully tested transmission at 4G, both up and downstream. Another leading cable company, Cox, recently announced it will invest billions in getting to 10G as well. The cable industry has adopted a rare approach to innovation. Research and development on basic cable network technology and infrastructure is performed by an organization called Cable Labs. Cable Labs habitually develops multiple options that give member companies the flexibility to architect their networks to support different capabilities, different features, and even different services. For those in the semiconductor industry who work with Semitech, Cable Labs will look somewhat familiar. Phil McKinney is the CEO of Cable Labs. Prior to that, he'd been Chief Technical Officer at HP. Cable Labs has always been interested in applications for its video and broadband networks, but the cable industry for the longest time had been a little insular. Under McKinney's guidance, Cable Labs has become more actively engaged, seeking out innovation around the electronics industry. Before our conversation, I was wondering what anyone might do with 10G, but somebody actually has an application that might require even more bandwidth than that. But that's getting a little ahead of the game. Here's Phil McKinney on where cable is now with broadband and where it's likely to go next. The 1G to 10G program, or what we call 10G when we think about it from a a standpoint of a a future vision, has actually been something that's been in development for for many, many years. Uh, 2019, uh, at Consumer Electronics Show, we rolled out the, the 10G program. And we gave a, a timeline and a roadmap for getting to one gigabit and then 10 gigabits. Keep in mind that in 2017, we had about 4% of U.S. homes that had access to one gig service. At 2019, at that event, um, we were approaching uh, 80% of all U.S. homes having access to one gigabit service. And now, in some cases, it's Uh, Members in Europe that are putting out one and a half gig and going to two gigs. We have some that are providing five gig services and 10 gig services around the world, depending on the markets, et cetera. And so while we tend to think about networks always in speeds, uh, people are measuring, do I have a 500 megabit network or one gig or two gig, five gig, whatever. Uh, The 10G program is not just about speed. It's also about things like latency or it's also about improved security and improved reliability better privacy so it's an it's it's lifting the 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 whole capability of broadband beyond just speeds which is important given that uh, the amount of data moving around is continuing uh, to explode we saw that with covid and the amount of people hopping onto zoom calls every day all day long 
um, but it's also uh, addressing and and uh, trying to go after uh, the other elements of a broadband network that are increasingly important latency that that lag time of how long mm-hmm. it takes to get a packet there and back uh, security becoming a big issue right we see all the the cyber attacks and we saw ransomware at hospitals right in the middle of covid uh, we've seen uh, re- the the drive for high reliability how do you improve the reliability reducing outages um, uh, doing uh, better and, and enhanced monitoring of the networks to to know what's going on so that you can be out there and actually be predictive where we've released some technologies that allow you to predict the issues with the network. So you can actually do proactive maintenance and doing that before the network has any form of an outage that a consumer would see. So with better technologies and AI and, and uh, better uh Uh, systems, you now can actually get out there and do these proactive network maintenance tasks. So it's a whole variety of things. All of this rolled up into what the the global cable industry now refers to as the 10G program. Now, I think uh, most consumers are familiar with broadband. When you say broadband, um, I think most people are, are associating that with um, residential services. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, that's, that's not just cable. It's also, uh, when you talk about, um, the, the, um, phone carriers, uh, with their wired and wireless services. Um, and I'm wondering to what extent, um, it creates the artifact that people think that, that, uh, that broadband is all about speed. Um, you know, at a certain point, uh, you know, I, I think I have, I have yet to meet anybody who's really excited about 5G wireless networking, you know, on their phone. It's like, what do I need that for? I play, I play, you know, I play solitaire on my phone and, and connect to Facebook. What's this all about? And I think therein is the answer. I hope what I'm doing is I'm setting you up to talk about business services. Well, I think the um, broadband has 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 a broad you know impact, right? Consumers. Mm-hmm. What we have seen most recently is that um, on the fixed network, you know, in your home or in your business, more and more people are actually creating content, not just consuming content. So it used to be mm-hmm. you just sit back and you're you're browsing and you're watching your videos or 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 uh, transferring files. Um, but more and more people, consumers and businesses, are actually creating content, and they're pushing more content up onto the cloud and, and onto and on and across the internet. So broadband is becoming, you know, interestingly important across a wide swath of demographics, but its use case does vary. Uh, business services is is becoming. Um, solely dependent. If you think about the the digitization that we saw throughout uh, COVID with, you know, small mom and pop shops, all of a sudden having uh, food ordering apps on, on a phone, a shop that you would never right. have right. to uh, be able to offer any form of digital services to businesses pushing their employees to work from home. So now 
is that consumer network at home a consumer network or is that a commercial network? Well, if the person's <laughs> remote home but working and has to get back to the enterprise to get data and complete their task, that's also business network. You know, if you go to a resort, you know, the biggest complaint that resorts are are dealing with is is uh, slow speed broadband. You know, mm-hmm. you got. 400 rooms in a hotel and everybody's trying to bang on that one network you know, all at the same time in the evening, nobody gets what they want and they complain about it. It's the one complaint we hear all the time. Um, and, and in fact, at Gable Labs, we did our project. This is a couple of years ago with one of our uh, incubator companies mm-hmm. to totally transform how Wi-Fi gets served um, in resorts. We did it at a trial in, um, in Florida, and we actually, it is the new Wi-Fi infrastructure at Madison Square Gardens. It was all based on that technologies that would allow literally tens of thousands of devices to connect Wi-Fi, and every device have actually a great experience because consumers want the broadband they have at home. They want to have that kind of speed wherever they're at. Talk to the IT department at Cable Lab. Some of the complaints, even within Cable Labs, is, is the, the Wi-Fi. <laughs> not being as fast as what people have at their home. So it's interesting because the home broadband now has become the gold standard. It become, it's the speed that people have. You know, you're not offering, if you got 300 employees, you're not procuring 300 gig of broadband to give every person in your office one gig service, but everybody can have one gig service at their home at a, at a pretty reasonable price. So the cons- it's kind of become different. It used to be you had great broadband at, at work and people would wait for the Monday after Black Friday to do all your ordering from your office because it had better broadband. Now it's, yeah. <laughs> now you get all this great broadband at home. Um, one other point about, uh, about uh, 1G moving to 10G um, is uh, that we haven't talked about is that uh, the, you're, the cable industry is moving uh, to providing symmetrical speeds. Tell us mm-hmm. what that is and why that's important. Yeah, there's a there's a push to it's increasing the upload speeds. We're still seeing it's about a ten to one usage pattern when we've you know look at the network utilizations and and then such. It you, you consumers and businesses in many cases. It's, you know, you'll do 10 times the download that you'll ever do the upload. Um, while people are creating the content, it used to be 12 to 1 and 15 to 1. We're about 10 to 1 right now. That ratio is coming down. We're seeing more and more content can be created. And the one benefit of the, of the cable industry is the cable industry is very entrepreneurial. They're willing to take, you know, meaningful risks. And as a result of that, they're willing to invest ahead of, you know, documented demand. You can't wait until all of a sudden everybody needs it and then start a construction project because these construction efforts and building it out and, you know, expanding capacities, you know, they're two, three, four-year efforts. They're not, you can't just, you know, boom, you know, click your heels. Thank goodness the industry invested the billions of dollars in, twenty. you know, going into 2019 and in early 2020, uh, and usually the network has about two and a half, three years of built-in capacity mm-hmm. uh, already into the network. And we saw two years of that capacity get eaten up within the first 30 days of COVID <laughs> starting in March of 2020. Instantly, 
two years of capacity in the network were taken up at that uh, overnight with everybody being, you know, pushed to work from home. Fortunately, more than ample capacity was already built into the network. And so that was, it really had no performance impact, but it shows that you need to have that kind of flexibility. So symmetrical is the next thing. There's a, there's a big push as people are creating content to invest in the network to get it so your upload and your download capacity is the same. So if you have one gig down, you have one gig up, two gig down, two gig up. And so get cable apps, we announced a new version for the for the coax fixed network uh, side of of the networks called Doxus. It's a technology that's been around for many decades and it's being progressed. Doxus 3.1 is the one that's most prevalent out there. It's what's providing one gig service to 80% of the US homes. Uh, Doxus 4.0, the new version of Doxus, the specification's done and Silicon is in good shape and you'll start seeing products coming out for that in the not too distant future. Um, and Doxus it starts at one gig symmetrical, two gig, five gig symmetrical and beyond. So now you'll be able to do upstreams and downstreams at the same speed. Day one, do you need that? No, it's a 10 to one ratio today, but we're seeing that growth and we always want to make sure that we are investing in the network ahead of when all of a sudden the consumers are going to want, are going to be demanding it. So that's an investment that's currently underway. Nobody has ever needed less broadband. <laughs> well, it's kind of like you never want to, you want to make sure you never fall into the Bill Gates quote, right? There's this <laughs> quote that says, nobody will ever need more than 640K of memory in a PC. You know, you can't even buy a laptop with less than eight gig. <laughs> now, <laughs> talk about talk about a line that will follow you to your grave, right? Yeah, well, you know, and, and Bill many times has has tried to deny that he never said the quote. So it's a so it's a, it's always interesting, but it's it's it is a good analogy. You know, it's you know we don't know what people are going to use the network for. So if you go back when you know. Cable broadband first came online. Cable replaced basically ISDN way, way back in the day. Mm-hmm, but when mm-hmm, they crossed mm-hmm. over into and ISDN was only, you know, one megabit, one and a half megabit. When cable crossed over to kind of 10 megabits to 20 to 30, all of a sudden we saw this explosion of innovations. Things like YouTube, mm-hmm. like Netflix. They did not exist, and then the broadband was built. The broadband network is built, and then innovators look at it and go, okay, what can I do with this? Oh, wow, I can stream video over this. We'll do YouTube, which is you know, consumer-generated content. Netflix, well, I can get TV shows and movies and stream them down. And all of, all of those, that, that catalyst to innovate becomes a, a, a really important uh, step in the process. Do we know what people are going to do? With one gig, five gig, or, or, or a 10 gig network, not a clue. We've got some good ideas. We've been doing a bunch of our own experiments, but there are some really, really smart people out there, some great innovators that I'm sure are going to find some amazing ways to use that. And as a way to, to drive this catalyst, one is we talk a lot about this 10G network. It's mm-hmm. coming. You think about you got 1G today. But that sometimes is not enough. So we actually are putting our 
In the case of Cable Labs, on behalf of the industry, we're putting our money where our mouth is, and we've put together a 10G challenge where we're encouraging innovators who've got really great ideas. Submit your ideas. If your idea gets selected, you can win up to $100,000 of non-dilutive funding. You get the money. You don't have to give us equity. We don't get, you know, it's really just our way of putting money behind the best ideas to see what innovators can create on top of these multi-gigabit networks that are being built out. And uh, we've been looking at some of the early submissions. Some of them are really interesting across a wide range of, of, uh, of use cases. And so we're pretty anxious. So, um, you know, we're, we're anxious for, for people to really you know, pull out that, that, that notebook and start scribbling down some ideas and submit them over at uh, 10gchallenge.com. And we'd love to see those. And you have a chance to win up to $100,000 of uh, non-dilutive prize money. What are the, the, what are the kinds of ideas you've heard about thus far? And, and this is an invitation to talk about uh, immersive film technology, but I, I suspect there are others. Yeah, I mean, at Cable Labs, one of, the, one of our uh, objectives is also to understand what are people going to do on top of the network, a la the, the 10, creating things like the 10G Challenge to get other people to think about it. But we also do our own development of technologies. We run our own experiments. We do co-innovation with you know, innovators around the world, looking mm-hmm. at their ideas and then testing them out and giving them access to our experts and our network technologies and our facilities uh, to try them out. So some of the ones that we've been really interested in is one is called light field displays. So light field um, is a, a, the ability to capture an image, uh, capturing all of the light reflection coming off of an image from all possible perspectives. So therefore, you in effect are creating of what's called a volumetric or a holographic type image. So literally, if I had a light field display and I'm showing a light field image on it, mm-hmm. and as I walked across the room back and forth in front of that uh, display, I am seeing the object in its full 3D. I can walk up to the side and look at it. I can look at it from the front. I can look down on it, I can look at it from the bottom, and I see it from all those perspectives as if it were literally physically um, in front of me. Um, That's wild. Like, you know, it, 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 when you see it, and there's no goggles required, none of that. But when you stand in front of a light field display, um, it is pretty amazing. Now, the challenge so- can you describe, forgive me for interrupting, but can you describe what the, is the display itself a flat screen or, are, or is there some sort of volumetric? No, okay. No, it's a flat, it's a flat display uh, today. And they're actually still pretty small, right? So they're only like nine inches by nine inches. So they haven't, they haven't scaled manufacturing up. There's some variations of, of light field type displays that are, mm-hmm. that are starting to get bigger. But uh, you know we're still in the early early, early stages of, of these technologies. But when you can see a light field display with light field content uh, on it, it it is it's pretty so amazing. 
the key is the capture. Uh, I'm 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 intuiting here. And as it is, it is, is the it, key, and it is incredibly hard to do because of the amount of data that those cameras have to capture. So there's a some people that I know very well. They left working for the big studios in Los Angeles. They created a company just to capture create cameras that could capture light field images for some early experiments being run in Hollywood. What does this do for storytelling? Um, how would you use this uh, to tell a story? Because when you think about a traditional camera and in storytelling, the director and the producer and the cinematographer using lighting and where the camera is focused and making other parts of the image fuzzy, they get the audience to look at a very specific place, you know, in the image. So you follow the action or they want to distract you so you don't see something over here. In light field, the fact that it's volumetric and I'm sitting here looking straight at the display and 200 people at a theater are all looking, they're looking at it differently and they're seeing it slightly differently. And you can literally walk around. You can feel like you're in the, in the story this is a technology that can transform storytelling. So this company that's developing these cameras, they're trying to build out these cameras to see and, and let the studio start, start experimenting about how do you tell a story when you've got a hologram, effectively a hologram type of, a, of an image of a scene, a murder scene or a love scene or right. you know, whatever. Right. How do you shoot it? How do you tell a story? How do you, you know, not get people, you know, looking in the wrong corner, right? When some key action happens, right? Those kinds of things. And so the and they built some of these cameras. They were doing some test shooting in LA and they called me up and they're like, hey, we got a problem. And I'm like, you know, what's the problem? And they go, Well, you know, for us to capture five minutes of light field on a three camera rig, which is pretty typical for a movie set, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you know, we're, we're pushing uh, the, the output capacity on these cameras to like hundreds of terabytes for five <laughs> minutes. So now you try to take that and now you're going to process it. And now you're going to put it into a film editing piece of software. And how do you, where do you store that kind of data coming off at that rate off of cameras? Because they're just capturing so much data that the data handling becomes the really big, big, big challenge. And so Cable Labs, along with a, a number of other companies, both in Hollywood and in Silicon Valley, uh, and Cable Labs was one of the founders, we created a I don't know what you want to call it. You can call it a collaboration or an industry association or whatever. And it's around this immersive display technology, both cameras and the displays to bring these companies together. The format looks like, how do you compress this data format to get it down to a reasonable size? How do you distribute it? You know, if light field content is all of a sudden going to be the content we're all going to have in our living room, which I predict it will be at some point. Um, how do you stream it? How does a cable company put it down the pipe to make sure that it, when it gets to a light field uh, display in your living room, that it, it comes back in full volume? 
so that you can take advantage of all those uh, characteristics. So, um, so you know, this, this, we're still in the early stages, but the technology is real. Displays really exist. Now it's about scaling them up to size. The camera work is still underway. The studios are experimenting with it. But this has all kinds of applications. Wait till light field becomes available. That is going to transform how people think about consuming content, enjoying content, participating in content. Light field is going to make people feel like they can participate. That is really exciting. Um, I've talked to uh, I've talked to uh, VR um, uh, developers and and uh, and uh, content developers and and all of the different ways that third dimension makes you think about storytelling. And it's like, how do you keep somebody from, you know, looking behind them when what you want to look at is something in front of them, right? Um, it becomes, a, the, the storytelling aspect of it becomes a problem to be solved, but the whole thing is very exciting, right? Because there, it, it, there's an opportunity to tell stories, maybe in a fundamentally new way. Exactly. And I think that's where I think, you know, if I, you know, if I was, if I had a, one of my kids or my grandkids, they want to go into, to do filmmaking, I would have them really think long and hard about what this, these kinds of transformative technologies are going to do for storytelling. I mean, back in, I think it's 2005, 2006, I did an early uh, vision film. And I do, I, I like doing these vision films to, because I find it just easier for people to see what I'm talking about than trying mm-hmm. to describe it. So I did these when I was this, the CTO for at Healer Packard. And we've, you know, and I've helped some other companies and we do them at Cable Labs. But we did one back in on the HP and it's also available out on YouTube. You can find it. It's called Roku's Reward or R-O-K-U's Reward. And it's an AR VR game that uh, you play, and it's and we filmed it in San Francisco, and you know, and it's uses CGI. But remember, this is this this film we did in two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, what's interesting about that game is, is even to this day, I still get emails from people asking where can they download this game to play, and I go, well, the game doesn't exist, and in fact. VCs and gaming companies have used Roku's reward as, as a descriptor when trying to raise money to create these kinds of new gaming experiences. So these are things that have all been under development for quite some time. Uh, AR, the Roku's reward does not have light field in it, but it's an AR VR in real life type of an experience for running around the city of, of San Francisco playing this game. But the the future of these kinds of capabilities are limitless, um, and I think we're, we're going to see some some people take advantage of these raw components and put them together in some very unique ways. Whether it's entertainment, gaming, uh, we've been uh, seeing some early test work with regards to um, uh, healthcare. And how does, uh, you know, what, what, what would a volumetric, a really good high-resolution volumetric imagery allow you to do in healthcare? How would you do this for, um, you know, like I said, entertainment, gaming, collaboration? 
in one of our films on on work um, or even at the end of learn uh, we show a almost like a, a holodeck kind of experience that this is what is being you know this is what's going to be brought forward and again I, the the challenge being is is I don't if we were going to do a light field display 65 inch diagonal display in your living room um, and it was it was it was a true light field display with light field content to feed the data to that 65 inch TV you are going to need about 800 megabits to that TV. You have been doing podcasting for as long as podcasting has been a thing. Um, And your podcast focuses on innovation and the process of innovation. Um, It's one of my favorites. Uh, I pop in from time to time uh, whenever I get the chance. It's always fascinating listening. Um, now that I've given you the requisite plug, um, can you tell us what you've learned about innovation recently? Talking to the, your guests um, or, or the, the your people who listen to your podcast, you know, what kind of feedback are you getting when you talk about innovation? What have you learned recently? Well, I think the one thing I've learned is I'm still amazed at how few people think of themselves as being highly creative. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it's a, I think it's human nature is, is that we are born creative, but we actually, whether we get dissuaded from it or we get it, you know, knocked out of us from criticism from others or whatever, most people do not think of themselves as being highly creative, but I argue that every person, everybody, we are naturally born creative. And what I'm always surprised is, is when people find that spark, however they find it, and then they go off and they invent something that they just never would have thought of themselves, but they just happen to be, you know, thinking about a problem and they, they kind of found, found that, that light bulb that turned on and they went off and they solved major problems or invented something that turned into being, you know, huge, you know, huge successes. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm just always amazed by the capacity of human ingenuity to really drive what I refer to as human progress. Do you think that that might be because there might be too narrow a definition of what creativity is? Well, I think you, you. I think you are right. I mean, we tend to when we say creativity, we tend to think of artists, musicians, um, writers. You know, all you know those types of things, right? But you can be creative in anything and everything uh, that you touch or do. I, I have a, a woman with a young family. They were early listeners of the podcast back when it started. And she, every year during the summertime, she would send me a nice, a nice email that would describe how she used the methodology that I teach in the book called FIRE. And she would actually run a FIRE brainstorming session for her family to brainstorm where they would go on vacation. So then she would share with me, you know, all the ideas her, her husband and the kids all submitted and they went through their ranking exercises and everything. And that's how they picked 
the family vacation. So it could be used for your family vacation. It could be used um, to start a business. It could be used to, to resolve a, a conflict with a company that you're partnering with or how to collaborate with them um, in a more open, transparent way. Um, I mean, literally, it can be used to, to solve you know, any number of things. It isn't always just tied to you know, big, you know, breakthrough, game-changing kinds of innovations. Incremental innovation is perfectly valid. And in fact, probably 80% of all innovations that ever make it into the marketplace are incremental. You've taken mm-hmm. something, you've improved it, and now, you know, you're 10% better or 5% cheaper or, you know, whatever. Um that's so, a good business model right there, right? You know, it is. Well, and look, that's what you see with like continuous process improvement. What is continuous yeah. process improvement? It's that incremental. It's innovating in those increments and you and you keep pushing that improvement and you have meaningful impact, particularly for large organizations where a 5% improvement in a large organization can have really, really big impacts. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, uh, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of, of my experiences going through through school and and and, uh, you know, the, the person who's in the play or is a really good painter or or, you know, in in the high school band is the creative person. And it's been a, a revelation to me over my career writing about engineering, how much how some of the extraordinary creativity is applied to figuring out how to make something. Right. You know, figuring out how to, how to build a, you know, build a, 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 an integrated circuit took some extraordinarily creative leaps. Um, and that's, uh, it's exciting. And I think I, I, I would imagine that, you know, I, uh, you know, people who grew up with, uh, you know, thinking of themselves as, as capable in what we now call STEM, uh, might not even think of themselves as being creative. Well, and I, and I think that is an issue, right? The, one story I, I tell in my book is about going into a kindergarten class and asking a kindergarten class, how many, you know, of kids, you know, 30 kids in a room, someone show me an artwork you've created or sing me a song you invented or show me a dance you created. You got 30 kids all wanting your attention. Here's my artwork. Let me sing you a song, right? Yeah. Now, ask that same question every year up to 12th grade. And at 12th grade, when you ask that question for high school seniors, how many do you think it is? Almost none. Okay. And, it tend, and it tends to be kind of the weird guy that nobody wants to eat lunch with in the lunchroom, right? I was that weird. Yeah. In high school, I was the weird guy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we, we kind of teach conformity. That's kind of the, the counter to creativity is conformity. You know, don't stand out. Don't don't look different. Try to look like everybody else fit into the mold. And then you send the college. It's all about grades. Right. So Mm. you're, you know, and then you graduate. The number one skill that CEOs hire for is creativity. The number one. 
for the last six years in every annual survey, creativity is the number one skill set. But we're graduating the, 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 these kids out of college where we've taught them to conform and, and you know, mm-hmm. you know, use a formula approach to finding the correct answer for the test. It's all of a sudden gone in the real world where there's there's no right answer. There's a better answer possibly, but you don't you don't know that at the beginning. You got to go figure it out. You got to go experiment, try things, and fail. And all of a sudden, you're asking people to act completely different in the business world to what the entire educational model is is that's that's out there. Um, and there's been there's a great uh, TED talk on this about the educational model and the impact on on creativity and innovation. Uh, but we've got to find a way to kind of help people refine that spark and, and realize that, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's not just PhDs and, and such that are the ones coming up with really great ideas, anybody and everybody. And I'm such a big believer of this, you know, my poor, all five of my poor grandkids get just terrorized because, you know, I'm constantly, you know, asking them questions and they've got a problem and I don't give them the answer, but I work it through with them to where they've got to apply critical thinking skills to come up with their own solutions. Or you talked about making, right? Mm -hmm. My, my grandson, you know, Liam, very hands-on, he likes to build stuff, whatever. Right. So for Christmas, I bought him a Glowforge, right. A laser cutter, right. Mm -hmm. What, you know, you know, what nine-year-old has their, has their own, has their own glow forge laser cutter right oh my gosh i'm going broke buying <laughs> materials for him you know he is like and he cleans it i mean he is like i've created a monster which is fantastic right uh, now he's taking commercial orders so if you want if you need anything cut acrylic vinyl he's making us some woman asked him to cut him a sign he's got his own facebook page i mean and he's nine. He's nine. Wow. But this it, it is about going back to this kind of making things, right? It's that mm-hmm. process of trying, you know, and he had to get kind of over the fear of, well, if I cut it wrong, then I've wasted a piece of acrylic. And I'm like, that's fine. You know, you've got to try it and see what it looks like. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like how it turned out. Okay, let's try it a different way then. It's that it, the fear of failure is the number one roadblock to unleashing creativity for people and finding people who will, you know, encourage you, you know, there's just so few encouragers out there in the world. Well, whether it's your coach or your mentor or your baseball coach or your boy scout, you know, whoever was, it was that it was an encourager to you. You remember that adult for, from a kid's perspective, you remember that adult that was an encourager so um are you gonna think i'm brown nosing too much if i bring up yet another one of your books and plug that (laughs) because i honestly it sounds like i mean what we're getting to is uh your 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 book from 10 years ago beyond the obvious and we're talking about you've got a bunch of people who have learned to conform and that's been a, a phenomenon for a very long time. Yep. And you get them into a situation where you want them to innovate or at least think creatively, um, whether they come, you know, whether they're the one that comes up with the widget or method or whatever themselves, 
to be able to, to contribute to original thinking. Mm-hmm. And beyond the obvious is about asking the right questions. Is right. that is that a good lead into how to get people to be more creative? It is. I mean, questions have a very unique power. If I ask you a question, you cannot stop yourself from answering the question. So if I ask you, what is half of 13? You've calculated the answer, and now you're back listening to me. Now, if you yell out the answer and you say, oh, that's easy, it's six and a half. Well, if we were doing a math test, I'd give you an A. If I'm giving you a creativity test, eh, C minus maybe a D plus. Why? What? Because- Come on, it's six and a half. Come on, Phil. Right. Well, this gets it. This is the important thing, right? Because what happens is is you stopped at the first obvious answer. Mm -hmm. 99% of your competitors will always stop at that first obvious answer. How do you get people to think beyond that first obvious answer? So now go back. Let's reword that question just slightly and ask you now, how many different ways could you describe the answer? for what is half of 13. Now you got six and a half, you got Roman numeral 13, you split it vertically, it's 11 and two, you split it horizontally, it's eight and eight. There's 13 cards in a deck of card. What's the middle card? You can write the word out, T-H-I-R, T-E-N. You can split the word, you know, vertically. There's There's a professor, she uses my book in her class and she always starts the semester off asking the question, what is half of 13? And so far, one, and she sends me the results all the time. So far, her the record for the most different ways a single one of her classes has, has answered the how many different ways can you describe the answer to half of 13 is 31 different ways to answer the wow. question, what is half of 13? So by wording questions in a certain way, you actually get people to look at the problem differently and find answers they didn't anticipate they were answering. So the the instigator, in most cases, that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can tell you're, you're is, an instigator, yes. Crafting questions in such a way that gets people to kind of get out of their normal you know, rut of thinking and to look at the problem completely differently. And then all of a sudden, you'll see the light bulb go off like, Oh my gosh, that's like a really, I'm like, yeah, that's a good idea. Now go do something with it. It's your idea. All I did was ask the question. You're the one who who answered the question, but saw a problem in a unique and different way. The other is, is um, encouraging, you know, in addition to the questions and questions being a great way. And it's really my methodology that I've used my entire career. And then finally I got asked to, to, uh, to write the book. Um, and then the book, and then the, there's a, a, uh, the killer questions card deck that, you know, people can get a hold of, um, which has all the questions in the deck. So it makes it a little bit easier if you're running a brainstorming session than flipping through, you know, 280 pages of a book, try to find the, find the right question. You could have been Cards Against Humanity if you just <laughs> if you just had a little bit more creative spark there, Phil. Yeah, yeah I got to I got to work on that. I got to ask myself a better ask myself better <laughs> questions, uh, right? And uh, you know, and it, and it and these are all just 
tools, right? So how do right. you, you know, then you, and it's not like, here's a magic 10 step process. Ooh, you know, magic happens. Um, it is having a collection of tools. If you could see me here in my studio, I've got books and I've got like every variation of creative card decks that have ever been published by, by anybody, you know, and, and different problems require different, you know, things to be applied to it. Um, but, uh, you know, what I, you know, back to a question you were asking before about what I'm, what am I surprised about? I think it is the power of that of human creativity. It, the human ingenuity engine is is amazing. And look, we solved, you know, we coming from hundreds of thousands of years of ancestors and the first invention of tools and the first invention of weapons to make it easier to hunt and all of all that human creativity that's allowed us to exist in today's world. And I look at my grandkids, I have five of them. I'm just shaking my head going, um, you know, I, I lived through the Apollo, Neil Armstrong, watching, sitting in front of the TV, watching him, you know, step onto the moon. And now you look at, you know, billionaires, you know, chasing each other for space flight. And, uh, and I think about my grandkids, I'm like, man, what are they going to see in their lifespan? What is it that they're going to experience now? Human progress has a positive and human progress has a potential negative, right? Yes. And sometimes I think as a society, we don't think about, we think all progress is good. Be careful. Not all progress is good. So taking that half a second and just thinking about unintended consequences is, is not a bad thing. And it's one of the things I teach in my workshops is, just because it's a good idea, think about it for half a second and make sure you understand what could happen on the other side. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, I mentioned this in a, with somebody else recently. Uh, a tool is neither good nor bad. It's how you use it, right? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And people can, and as humans, we're like, we're very creative. We're also very creative and rationalizing, you know, yes. and we will rationalize anything. Right. And look, I think, you know, you think, you think about big changes, big impacts, um, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to get, you know, how are they going to get used? Look, when, you know, when the first rockets, you know, being built, you know, were actually is the result of weapons. So it started off as a bad thing that then got moved into a, a better thing, right? Um, you know, so it can move both ways, but you know, as you know, and I encourage this to the listeners of my my show about as innovators, you have a responsibility around this concept that I call ethical innovation, right? It isn't just about innovating just because you you're creative and you come up with really great ideas. Think about impact of innovations and understand it and understand that risk. Now, the other problem is, is unintended consequences. You can do something that just, you know, you never intended it to be used that way. But at the same time, the power of innovation with healthcare, we've seen lifespans improving, we're, we've seen, uh, I, you know, I, I'm involved in, a, you know, helping uh, some friends and some educational technology that I think is, 
is going to be really, really exciting about how do you how do you unlock creativity in kids and how do you keep feeding it over their entire uh, educational model versus today they you know we it's slowly kind of you know peters out. So um, I think I think the the scope and role for human human progress is is unbounded. Um, the only the only limit is our ability to to think and think creatively. To either encourage thinking creatively or tamp tamp down on it and inhibit it. Those are our choices. That's your choice. But uh, uh, if you don't progress, you don't stand still. You actually will decay. Right. Right. So your your only choice is to progress or decay. And I don't know. I'll vote for progress. <laughs> Rather than I was, was going to ask, are you going to be a half full and getting fuller, or or half full and and, and emptying out kind of a guy? I I I, I am. A, you know, put, count me in the in the corner of human progress, human ingenuity, um, innovating uh, our future in such a way that our lives are better. Uh, we have better. Uh, uh, you know, the human potential for everybody um, we, we deal with, we innovate around the social issues we've got as a society. Um, it's not just about, you know, technology or the, a new mobile app. You know, we're facing some, some pretty big, you know, challenges and opportunities as a society. And a lot of people would be very pessimistic thinking that, you know, the best is behind us now. The best is in front of us. It's whether or not we want to do the hard work. That is a perfect place to end. Phil, it is always a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The 10G challenge that McKinney was talking about, you can find that at 10challenge.com. There's also a link to it on our webpage. And my way of cutting 13 and a half, 13. And that concludes another episode of The Weekly Briefing. Thank you for listening. The Weekly Briefing is available on all the major podcast platforms, but if you get to our website at eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript along with direct links to the other stories we've mentioned, along with other resources. The Weekly Briefing is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.